it's Imogen from SquarePeg. Last year, the global SquarePeg team decamped from our offices in Tel Aviv, Sydney, Melbourne, and Singapore to San Francisco, where we spent three days with the founders from our portfolio for some community-led growth. Shimon told us about his experience in the Air Force. Will Gabrick, Stripe's CFO and head of products, shared his experience. Tesla's chair of the board, Robin Denham, talked through board construction. Keith Raboy of PayPal Mafia and Twitter fame gave the 101 on operations. It was an incredibly special few days. Not least, because we also had some special guests with us. Along with the portfolio and a handful of world-class operators, we'd invited a group of founders who weren't in the portfolio, but whom we hoped maybe one day would be. This episode is with one of those founders, Michele Ferrario, the founder and CEO at Stashaway. But building a beautifully designed fintech startup wasn't what Michele had in mind for himself as a future career. No, when Michele was growing up in a small town near Lake Como in Northern Italy, he only had eyes for the beautiful game. Meet Michele. Early on, I wanted to be a soccer player. That was the one thing. And uh, my mom is a teacher. And she kept telling me, stop playing soccer, go to study. Stop playing soccer, go to study. Now, in a hindsight, if you look at the careers of good soccer players, I don't think it was good strategic advice. I should have actually played more time and, and studied less. No, but, no, jokes aside. So early in my life, it was being a soccer player. At a certain point, like when I was in, as a teenager, I became being a businessman. I mean, it was not a dream, it was more a plan. There was this friend of mine that I remember in high school that made fun of me and, uh, and told me, look, people's idols are, you know, Michael Jordan and Diego Armando Maradona or whatever, or a rock star. And, uh, and your idol is your dad, which at the time, I think it was actually quite accurate. And I think that provided for a little bit of guidance on what I wanted to do. When Michele talks about his early life, his father was almost certainly a big influence. Michele told me, the where he grew up, people rarely thought beyond the village, beyond the local cities or the national borders, but his father was different. McKelly realized young that through business, you really could be an international citizen. My openness to other countries, to be international to the world, came uh, late in life. I, and I would say it came mostly for two inputs. One was my dad, who has always had a little bit of an international uh, career. So he's always been working for Italian companies. But, you know, for an Italian man his age, he spoke amazingly good English. And so he ended up having roles that kind of involved him traveling. And so he spent a lot of time in Asia, spent a lot of time in the U.S. And therefore gave me the, the idea that it was normal to be open to the world, to travel. Uh, and, uh, you know, actually uh, helped me organize a couple of internships, even if, you know, I, I tell people I was working, but really I was kind of having experiences, I guess, when I was 18, 19 and 20 for three summers. I did two summers in New York, uh, working at a PR agency that my father was working with. And listen up, one summer in Sydney, actually. So yeah, when I was 20, I spent a month in Sydney, you know, not really working, but kind of in, in theory, going to an office in the morning and uh, learning some English and learning that the world was more than my 5,000 people village in Northern Italy. So that was one input for me becoming, I guess, kind of having more international mindset. And the second input, I guess, was uh, during university. I went to business university in Milano. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a classic 
kind of a private uh, good business university and they had a lot of contacts with companies. And one of the things they do very well was the exchange program. And so I went to Chile and spent six months there, learned Spanish. Again, good, amazing personal experience, just learning that uh, kind of life could be very different in different parts of the world. And that most importantly, I think, learning that I could survive kind of anywhere. Uh, and then I graduated from business and I started working in Italy, actually. McKelly was hired by McKinsey in Milan, but he managed to spend his four years between Milan and New York, advising mostly financial institutions such as banks and insurance companies. And he told me that his first job was a steep learning curve, but honed to very specific skills. The first, and this is perhaps no surprise to ex-consultants, was the ability to just grind through the hours, late nights, early mornings. And the second was the ability to communicate, not only in numbers. One is work ethic. I learned that, you know, working 12, 14, 15 hours a day is normal. And uh, I know it's not, but, I, you know, it's actually, it is for me. It has been, and I guess it is always going to be, because that's how I started my professional life. I think that's been instrumental in then kind of uh, letting me learn fast and grow faster just because I've always been working quite hard. And secondly, I think uh, I'm an analytical person. Like I'm very number driven. I'm good with numbers. Um, My wife makes fun of me because she tells me that the first time we met, I told her that uh, I like numbers, numbers like me, which I guess was not very romantic. But what I think McKinsey did on top of it is help me improve my communication and my structured communication. And I think that's a very good thing to carry on. So I think those are the two things, kind of work ethic and uh, uh, structured communication. When I was at McKinsey, I applied to MBA schools and I ended up going to Columbia. And one of the questions that I had to respond in order to apply was, what are you most passionate about in life? That was kind of one of the five essays for Columbia. And I reread it recently. And what I replied to that was uh, what I'm most passionate about in life is people. And what I wrote was that all of my decisions were driven by people. I think what I learned is that it didn't really matter whether I was working for a bank or for a logistic company or for anything else, or whether I was doing a marketing project or an operations project or a financial project. What mattered was who were the other people working with me. And this is something I still strongly believe in. And to be honest, it's still what drives me is, you know, the people around me. And, uh, and it's been the key of everything I've done in the last decade. I identify with this so strongly. There is nothing quite like working alongside brilliantly capable people. After McKinsey, McKelly stepped into the investment world, joining a private equity fund that focused on mid-market growth equity. And it was here that the unconstrained world of consulting began to crash headlong into the practicalities of running a business. I think in private equity, I learned a couple of things also. One is the importance of cash. And that seems trivial, but in reality, especially as a consultant, you work in this kind of vacuum where cash kind of doesn't really exist and the kind of understanding that if you don't have cash at the end of the month, you don't pay salaries. It's something that especially post Lehman Brothers crisis was kind of a clear teaching from private equity. And the second thing was uh, the ability to read and negotiate uh, legal contracts, which is another thing that as a consultant, you never see. And so those are the two things that I've kind of learned in private equity. But then obviously I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today if I didn't spend time at Rocket Internet, to be honest. I think Rocket was an amazing school in uh, teaching me 
what does it mean to build something from scratch? Rocket Internet. You've probably heard of it. It's known as a venture builder, an incubation program that at its height had over 20 companies worldwide and was worth over $3 billion. It was founded in 2007 by the three Samware brothers who are somewhat controversial figures because they're most well-known for finding promising new technology models, mostly in the US market, and then rapidly launching a rocket internet-backed version into another market with speed and execution as their competitive advantage. Some say this is out-and-out copying. Others say an idea is worthless without execution. And boy, were the Samware brothers good at execution. Their eBay-esque business, as an example, grew so fast and so successfully against the 18 existing marketplace competitors in Germany that within 100 days of launch, eBay itself bought it for $35 million. So however you feel about the model, it's clear that they were good at what they did. And at the time McKelly was rounding out three years in private equity, they were looking to branch out into new markets and Italy seemed attractive, which was lucky because for once, McKelly wanted to be first to something. I thought that I kept being late to the game, meaning at McKinsey, I joined McKinsey in 2003. I loved it, it was great, met great people, learned a lot, but I felt that I was 10 or 15 years late, meaning that I felt that joining McKinsey in Italy in the early 90s was incredible. In the early 2000s was less so, meaning that it was a very large office where, you know, of course there was a lot of strategic work done, but not only that. So I don't think it was as exciting as I imagined it to be 10 or 15 years earlier. When I joined private equity, uh, and that was again in Italy in 2009, I felt that there were a layer of, I was an investment manager, there were a layer of partners that were maybe seven, eight, 10 years older than me that were there not exclusively by merit, but mostly because they were at the right time uh, in the right place. Because in, when they started private, in the career in private equity, in Italy, nobody knew what private equity was. And so the selection process to get there was not particularly complex. And then now they were the only people with 10 years or 15 years of experience in private equity in, in the country. And therefore, they had kind of made a very fast career. Some of them deserving it, some others maybe not. And so when Rocket called, and this was completely random, it was a colleague of mine from McKinsey calling me, asking me if I could refer somebody in Italy, and me telling her, oh, maybe I'm interested. Uh, <laughs> the conversation moved on to potentially open the Italian office of Rocket. The thought that I had was, this is my chance to be ahead of the wave, not to be 10, 15 years late, but rather to be right on time. This was in late 2011. And just and Italy is a very late internet market, meaning you know Amazon opened an office in Italy in like 2014, I think. So this was like three years pre-Amazon in Italy. So I thought there was a real opportunity to be ahead of the game and to actually kind of ride the wave for once for being ahead of it rather than behind it. So the pitch was open the Italian office and your job is going to be to launch companies in Italy. Um, yeah, that was a very simple mandate, which is actually what I did for, for the first year, more or less, was kind of launching new companies in Italy. And in reality, so Rocket was going international. At the time, they had an office in Berlin, which is their main office, and they just opened an office in Sao Paulo, in Brazil. And they were in the process of trying to go international. Rocket, as the name suggests, tries to be fast. And so they were opening 
everywhere very quickly and uh and it was honestly very exciting and uh in italy we launched a couple of companies uh, built a team uh, and you know i was 30 it was a kind of a great experience and Michele, as it turns out, seemed particularly gifted at building high growth companies. And so the opportunities began to fall from the sky. And then after six months, I was asked to also take the leadership of Pakistan with a similar role of launching new companies. So I was doing Italy and Pakistan at the same time. And uh, the goal was, again, launch new companies in Pakistan. So we launched three companies in Pakistan. And then around a year later, I was uh, asked to move to Singapore. And the pitch was, move to Singapore and do what you have been doing in Italy and Pakistan. So the pitch was go there and do rocket Southeast Asia, which means launch new companies in Southeast Asia. That's when I kind of boarded the flight. By the time I landed, they told me, look, but for now we have an issue. Could you please spend some time on this company called Zalora? And Zalora at the time was around one year old, actually. So they have been live. Yeah, they've been live for like, nine or 10 months, and uh, depending on the country. Uh, it had already 1,500 employees in seven countries. So it was a gigantic and very, very messy organization and a tiny business at the same time, which is not a good combination. And didn't have leadership. So the CEO had, you know, was not there anymore. So they had a leadership vacuum, which is the reason why uh, they asked me if I wanted to temporarily join. And then that temporary very quickly became you know, can you please change your LinkedIn profile to say that you're actually the CEO of Zalora? Because otherwise, you know, if we go fundraising, it's going to be difficult to justify. And then it, it just, it became obvious very quickly that this was going to be what I was going to do for a long time. So I kind of dropped my multi-company hat and put on a single company hat. And it was great. Right? And uh, it was not planned, but looking back, it was great. It was a great experience. And as I mentioned, it was a very complex and large organization. And therefore, yes, it was a scale up but it was also an attempt of a turnaround at the same time. Zalora is an online fashion retailer that services Southeast Asia. It's now part of the global fashion group, GFG, who now owns international mega retailers such as the Iconic in Australia, New Zealand, Tafisi in South America, and Lamoda in Russia and the surrounding countries. You may recognize one of these brands. In Australia, where I'm based, the Iconic is the online fashion retailer. And it's true too for Zalora. For some perspective, in Q2 of this year, Zalora pulled in over $100 million in revenue. So it's big. But when McKelly took over, it was barely a year old with a huge team and big growth targets. First year was the hardest McKelly had ever had for lots of reasons. I got married six months before moving to Singapore. And my wife was a lawyer, Italian lawyer. And she had a good job in Milano, working in a very prestigious law firm. And when I got the offer to move to Singapore, we discussed it and we decided to do it. So she dropped her job and we moved to Singapore. And obviously, I kind of felt a little bit of responsibility on my shoulder. And again, just to give you context, this was in late 2012. So I was 30, close to 32. And now I was the CEO of a company, 1,500 people in a new country I'd never been before. And my wife had just dropped everything and moved with me, you know, uh, 12 hours away from where she's lived all of her life. So I did feel a little bit of pressure. Let's just put it this way. I was a little bit out of my comfort zone. And the reality is that Laura was not in good waters. And uh, so it was burning a lot of money. There was not a lot of money in the bank. And the management team was 
not there and it was a bit of a mess and so the first few months were really really tough i was working you know 20 hours a day which didn't help my wife which again was in a new city not working for the first time in her life so it was very very hard first six seven months were really 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 hard and um yeah sometimes we pulled out of that and somehow it worked out at the end but the first six months was terrible for for me personally it was really tough and i learned a lot but it was really really tough on the personal side and uh, so that's one thing and then the second thing that i really struggled with as a lot and this is something that kind of continued for the whole time which is maybe the one negative learning, I mean, the one thing that I've tried to do differently uh, after Rocket, after Zalora, was the fact that the management team was not well assembled. You know, there was not good chemistry because it was just assembled from the top rather than built from kind of a founder's perspective. And that created an enormous amount of problems. It created governance problems, it, it made decision-making slow, it, it dispersed a lot of energies and, and resources. And that's something that I learned. It's very difficult to fix. Uh, you need to get it right at the, at the get-go. But despite the impossibly long hours and high-pressure team environment, his time at Zalora also holds extraordinarily fond memories. Many, many of them and all linked to amazing people. So, you know, at the end of the game, Zalora is, is a successful company and there is a, a few people that have really made the difference. And uh, the common traits that these people have joined very early, very junior, right? They were very young and very early in their careers. And over time, they took outsized responsibilities, but just continuing to go the extra mile. And a few examples of a great moment is, I, you know, for a long time, I was directly responsible for the logistics and operations, meaning that there was no senior people overseeing that other than me. And over time, we had to move warehouses many times because a lot of was kind of getting bigger and bigger. And so there was a period of time where we, I think we moved like four warehouses in six months and moving a warehouse is a mess. It's very complex. So that was, that was fun. And I was in the warehouses and uh, it was kind of a very high energy moment with a lot of people kind of rowing in the same direction, trying to, to make the impossible happen. And uh, so that was a, it was a good times. Just as many high growth companies raise funds to support their ambitions, Zalora was the same. But although McKelly wasn't the founder of Zalora, he was still heavily involved in closing fundraising rounds for the company, which was an unusual setup for lots of reasons. Zalora fundraising was a bit different from fundraising as a founder of, of a company like Stashaway. And it was different in two ways. First, the size of fundraising was always gigantic. So it didn't go from you know, a few hundred thousand, a few millions to tens of millions. I think we were always raising, you know, 50 to 100 million. And so it was a bit different from the normal experience. Investors that invest 50, 100, 150 million are very different from investors that invest 2, 5, 10, 15 million. Uh, and the second thing is that the process was run mostly from Rocket. So the introductions, so there was no scouting. I was more covering a management role rather than a founder's role. And that's true all, you know, all around, including during, during the fundraising process. Uh, so, uh, you know, Rocket called people founders, but in reality, they're managers of, of the company. And that's true also during the fundraising process. Having said that, obviously, the more exposure you have to investors, the more you learn how to tell a story, the more you learn about, you know, what matters, what are the questions that may ask. 
And so I did learn probably uh, how to better present an opportunity, better address some of the potential problems. And, uh, and I guess in general, preparing well the material and the logic uh, in a structured way. This comes a little bit from all of my experience. So Michele had been the CEO at Zalora for a few years. He built structure and processes into the team and grown the company with the classic rocket internet zeal. And all in all, he was loving it. In uh, April 2016, I was at Zalora. I was very happy to be there. I was 110% invested in making Zalora work and I was not even thinking about what else I could be doing. But I did have a personal issue, which is I was decently paid at Zalora, so I was saving money, but I was still working very hard. Uh, I, in the meantime, I had two kids, and so uh, I didn't want to spend my nights and weekends managing my money because I had other things to do. And so this became kind of a problem of mine in a way, and I tried to solve it by opening a couple of bank accounts and uh, then quickly realized that the banks were not interested in helping me. They were just interested in selling me products I really didn't need with stupidly high prices. And so because I do have a background in finance and I could read through that, I kind of actually left most of money in cash, which is also a stupid thing to do uh, at, you know, in your mid thirties, but I just didn't have time. So the problem remained unsolved. And then in April, 2016, uh, I was uh, following the earning calls of the largest shareholder of Zalora, which is a company called Shinavik. It's a Swedish company. And uh, as I was flipping through their presentation, I, I read they led a Series D round in a U.S. company called Betterment, which was a digital wealth manager. So I quickly read through it and I saw, you know, it's a low cost, ETF base, uh, easy diversification, fully digital. And I thought, oh, wow, this is the way I want to invest my money. Let me find a local player in Singapore. So I learned a new term called RoboAdvisor. So I went on Google and I wrote RoboAdvisor Singapore. And I couldn't find any. And that's when I was like, okay, you know, hopefully sooner or later, something will come up. But it didn't seem to come up. No one was building the robo-advisor that McKelly was desperate to use. And though it was a fun proposition to mull over, McKelly didn't really think he'd ever build it himself, had it not been for developments at Zalora. By this point in the Zalora journey, GFG were the new owners in town. And after a handful of frank discussions... McKelly and the global GFG CEO agreed that they had incompatible visions for the future of Zalora. So we decided that it was best for me to, to kind of leave and uh, to part ways. And so I started thinking about, okay, what do I do next? Because I really hadn't thought of, you know, I was 100% focused on Zalora, so I had no clue. I hadn't thought about what else I can do for a very long time. And this uh, kind of problem of mine came back to mind. And so I started thinking about, so maybe if really there is nobody helping people solve this issue in Southeast Asia, maybe I can try. And so what I did is I started looking for people to do it with. And the first person I was looking for uh, was a tech guy, somebody that, you know, you know, I can't write code, I can't read code, uh, and I wanted to build a tech company. So obviously that was a big gap of mine. And so I reached out to a guy named Nino, who was introduced to me a year earlier by a former colleague of mine. So I reached out, we met for coffee, and this was 19th of July, 2016. And uh, we met for coffee uh, the following day, we met for coffee the third day, we met for coffee the fourth day, we met for coffee the fifth day. And by the end of the week, I kind of convinced him that the idea was not too bad. He knew the business model, 
uh, is German, so he had been in Europe. In Europe, there were a couple of players, and actually, the person that put us in touch used to be the CMO of a player in Europe, so he actually knew that well. And uh, he was not super happy about what he was doing, so kind of I managed to convince him that this could have been a good idea. Uh, I really enjoyed my interaction with him through coffees. I assume he thought the same. And so that's how it was started. And it literally took a week. And so at the end of the week, then we said, okay, you, meaning Nino, will start looking for a UX designer. And I look for an investment guy, which is the kind of, you know, we want to build an investment company. We need a senior investment person. Michele reached out to 30 people on LinkedIn with a simple pitch. Hey, I'm Michele. I'm the CEO at Zalora, and I have an idea that I want to talk to you about. And everyone that met Michele for a coffee was surprised because not only was it a very non-fashion e-commerce idea, but he already had a really clear idea of what criteria he was looking for in a co-founder. And the list was long. It was very difficult to find somebody that could fit what we were looking for, uh, for a number of reasons. One, I was looking for somebody with at least 10 years of experience. So these were very senior people, managing directors in the banks. And all of them were living very comfy lives, very nice salaries, with a lot of people working for them. And I didn't see any of them actually rolling up their sleeves and uh, joining a startup that was not even a startup, it was simply an idea at, at that point in time, and trying to do things from scratch. Uh, and then the second problem was that very few people had cross asset classes experience, or the ability to think about how much money one invests in equities, in bonds, in North America versus Asia, in gold, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody was a specialist. Either you are a specialist in Asian equities or in you know, Chinese bonds or whatever, whatever else might be. Until at a certain point, one of the UX designers that Ino was interviewing told us, hey, you should speak to this guy named Freddie. Freddie Lim is a multi-asset class specialist who'd most recently been the managing director and global head of derivative strategy for Nomura, a $1.7 trillion market cap financial services firm. Michele's seemingly impossible wish list was about to sit down with him for coffee. So I met Freddie for coffee at Starbucks at Cafe in Singapore. And um, one hour coffee chat became a three and a half hour problem solving session where we were discussing you know how you could merge his ideas and his experiences uh, with uh, kind of simplifying it to make it possible to put it in a kind of in a retail platform that was the 3rd of august 2016 and so when i walked out of that coffee i felt okay we have the team you know with uh, nino and freddy it's going to be impossible for anybody to build such a strong team in southeast asia and so we started, we incorporated the company a month later, the 9th of September, and we started raising money. And by the end of the year, so three months later, we had, uh, we had 10 people, we had filed for a license, and uh, we knew what we were trying to do. And what they were trying to do was to help people grow their wealth, reach financial goals, and retire comfortably. So Stashway is a digital wealth management platform. And the way we describe internally what we are trying to do is we want to empower people to build wealth for the long term. And so that's the vision. We want to help people manage their money and build their wealth and uh, achieve peace of mind, making sure that people can retire uh, at a certain point in their lives or you know, achieve financial freedom. That's how some, some people call it over time. And the way we want to do it is through a platform that makes it simple and cost-effective to invest intelligently. So there is a simplicity angle, a reduction of investment cost angle, and very importantly, an access to intelligent investing angle. 
which especially in Southeast Asia is not there. As I, this was my experience, as I mentioned earlier, was terrible dealing with the traditional players. So we are now four years into building Stash Away. We are live in two countries, uh, in Singapore and Malaysia, and looking at uh, further international expansion. We don't disclose numbers, but let's say we have quite a high number of investing clients. And most importantly, those investing clients are very, very happy with the product we built and the service we provide. Uh, as you can easily see if you just read our kind of Google Play or, or Apple Store type of feedback. So I think what we've done so far has been very good and going in the right direction of helping people build their wealth. Obviously, the next step, if I think forward, is to make sure, first of all, of course, that we increase the number of people that use the platform so that we can have more people. And secondly, that the people that use the platform over time uh, see Stashway as the, as the main platform that they use to manage their money. Some people are already there, but a lot of other people are still testing with a few thousand dollars, a few tens of thousands of dollars. And obviously those are not enough to retire, but we do see people over time. So uh, actually moving an increasing amount of their money uh, with us and then starting to really plan for all their major goals uh, with us. And it's uh, very fulfilling to sometimes read the stories of people that, you know, kind of managed to reach a goal and uh, managed to put aside the amount of money they wanted. Of course, it's early days and uh, we are a long-term investment platform. So most people's goals are 20, 25 years away. Uh, so it will take quite a bit of time to help them. Uh, but I think we, uh, we start with the right foot forward. Okay. It's at this point in the conversation that I started to feel like I needed to confess something. All of my money, all of it, except a small amount I'd invested into startups, was sitting in cash in the bank. You know, that's exactly the point. You are not an atypical, you know, most people are like you. Most people have other things to do in their lives that don't want to spend their day trading. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the willingness to do it. They don't have the time. But everybody wants to retire. So everybody needs to do something about it. And helping everyone think about it, do the right thing, don't react stupidly when the markets go very high or very low, because that's what most people do, right? You know, the markets go very high, you get excited, you invest more. Uh, the markets go low, you get scared, you take the money out. That's exactly the opposite of what you should be doing, right? So kind of helping people, uh, kind of hand-holding them as the markets evolve over time and get, make sure that they have the right uh, portfolios, the right risk level, and, uh, and do the right things over time is, I think, a, a very... A very important thing to do and something that uh, I think we, we, you know, we have an opportunity to, uh, to do well. As an aside, since this conversation, I put my money to work. It was ludicrously easy to do so and I am still mad that I didn't do it earlier. But back to Stashaway, Michele just said that they had the opportunity to do really well. And that is absolutely true because the opportunity is huge. The market is very large and the market is people's savings and just to give you numbers you know in singapore only and singapore obviously you know it's always seen as a small market but singapore by itself has 700 billion us dollars in uh, financial wealth and of these uh, 700 billion uh, us dollars 36 percent are in cash so there is you know 300 billion or slightly less than that us dollar sitting in bank accounts doing close to nothing 
And uh, you can build a very nice wealth management business with $300 billion under management. And I'm just talking about Singapore. I'm just talking about money sitting in cash. So the opportunity is gigantic when you start adding more countries uh, and all countries of Southeast Asia share this gigantic percentage of cash issue. And this is driven, I think, by a couple of things. One is the industry has not been successful in helping people actually get their money to work because they're focused on making profits and they're focused on selling complex and expensive products rather than really educating and helping people do the right thing. And secondly, because a lot of this wealth is quite recent, you know, unlike in Europe where uh, most of the wealth has been there for generations, a lot of the wealth has been built in this generation and therefore it's uh, early days and people are still getting comfortable with what you can do with the money you put aside. So wealth is younger uh, and therefore more digital by definition. And those people are simply looking for investment services that make sense and that doesn't exist today. So building a platform that makes investing make sense is something that is, uh, I think, a tremendous opportunity. Stashaway is all about long-term investment. It's not about beating the market every day. It's about compounding smart wealth growth. And they do that through a simple set of offerings. We have three products right now. We have a cash management product. We have an income portfolio. And we have a set of 12 core portfolios, we call, which is the first product we launched. Now, the idea is that we want to offer everything you need for your wealth. You're going to have some cash, which is your safety net. That's, you know, six to nine months of your cash. You know, if something goes wrong, you want to get access to it immediately. You don't want to be worried about selling at the wrong moment, meaning it always needs to be the right moment to sell if you need to. It's called Stashway Simple because it's simple. There is uh, kind of no rules. You can put the money in whenever you want, put the money out whenever you want. There is a target projected rate and, and that's it. No minimum, no maximum. It's simple. And that's how cash management should be. And then there is an income portfolio, which is for people that have enough assets that they want to start generating income out of their assets. So maybe start to target on the older crowd in a way. So people that are starting to supplement their work income with maybe investment income or simply people that want to get exposure to income generating asset classes. And that's a kind of a Singapore focused portfolio. And then the main portfolios are, uh, as I mentioned, 12 core portfolios that invest across asset classes across the world uh, in a very systematic way. That's been our first product is our main investment product. And it's built on a proprietary, very sophisticated asset allocation framework, which we call ERA, Economic Regime Asset Allocation, which was uh, developed leveraging you know, a few decades of academic research, as well as more than a decade of experience from Friday doing this for institutional investors, plus also leveraging some of our advisors. We have a network of advisors that are very senior. And so we, we managed to build a systematic view uh, so that we don't have to rely on whether our chief investment officer feels warm or cold in the morning and therefore wants to buy or sell gold because that's how mistakes happen. We actually have built a set of rules that we follow as the markets go up, down, left or right. And so far it served us very well, meaning that since we launched, we went through two quite deep corrections. One was in Q4 2018 and one was obviously 2020 with covid and we've done very well throughout the crisis. In fact, we came out of the crisis always way stronger than when we started it with uh, even stronger trust because we told people the right things throughout the crisis. 
And the reason we were able to do that is that we weren't following our guts or our emotions, but rather we were following a system, a set of numbers and rules that we put in place to navigate, especially stressful times. And uh, I think that's kind of a, you want to take emotions to the side when you think about investing, especially because the markets can get your emotions quite involved. One of the most difficult components of building a successful financial services business is in building trust with your customers. We heard Nathan from Athena talk about this beautifully. And historically, traditional organizations did it in real life. You used to be able to meet a person, often in your city, who could shake your hands, give you a pen, and tell you you were making a good choice. In the digital world, trust is built differently. I think it's a complex puzzle. You know, you could argue that we are in the business of building trust and maintaining trust over time. Obviously, you know, we are convincing people that we are the right platform for them to build the retirement plan. And uh, that takes quite a bit of trust. You know, trust is built slowly over time and is destroyed very quickly in a second. And so uh, I guess the secret is to be very solid in everything you do. And uh, being very solid means making sure that the tech platform is incredibly well-built and strong. You know, when you have a downtime in an e-commerce website, okay, you, you, know, you come back and you buy a t-shirt later. But if you have frequent downtimes in a platform that manages your money, you, your trust starts to be kind of touched. And, you know, we actually never had that and, and that's great. So I think the puzzle starts with being solid and being reliable. Uh, and then uh, I think the second step is being credible and consistent and trustworthy in your communication. So I think communication is incredibly important and communication goes across a variety of different channels. It's your marketing communication. It's also your client engagement communication. It's proactive sometimes, but it's also reactive when people call your phone number. So for instance, one thing that we put a lot of attention on is the fact that if you call our phone number, we pick up the phone in less than eight seconds. We also have a WhatsApp line that you can text us and we respond in a couple of hours. And being there, being quick, being always reliable and always say the truth. And when we don't know something, we tell people we don't know, let us come back to you. Each of those pieces are very small steps toward building trust. And again, if you're building financial services, especially if you're building a kind of a wealth management platform, the key is exactly this. And then obviously you layer on top of this being able to manage money. And uh, that's, I think, something we've done incredibly well over the last three years. You know, returns since we launched are incredibly positive. Uh, I think the platform, the systematic view uh, that we've built has been working very well through the ups and downs of the market. And obviously that creates a reinforcing cycle where People are happy, they engage with us more and give us the opportunity to show them that we are trustworthy and that we are trying always to do the right things for the clients. In April this year, mid-pandemic, Stashaway started to raise their Series C. Tushar, our partner in Singapore, had known Michele and the team for a while and he eventually led the round. Stashaway has raised money a couple of times, and I asked Michele how he thinks about his relationship with investors. When I went fundraising, the one thing we've been always looking for in investors since the very early days is uh, thought partners, meaning that we're not looking for somebody that gives us access to a market or introduces us to people. We are a quite senior team. We have a good network ourselves. 
obviously the more the merrier but that's not what is going to help us succeed what i always thought and uh, nino and freddie my two co-founders agreed with me is that what we want is people that sit on our board of directors and ask us the hard questions make us look where we will not be looking ourselves so people that kind of uh, can help us be our rear view mirror if you will like kind of seeing blind spots and help us therefore make less mistakes and capture more opportunities that's always been the the focus as we were kind of uh, looking for investors in our series C round square peg led round and actually was a competitive round meaning that there were a few funds uh, interested in investing and i think the, so the reason we we choose square peg is very simple i personally enjoyed building a relationship with the whole team to share but not only to share over the last uh, year and a half I think uh, Tushar and the overall team has done an amazing job in kind of keeping track of what we're doing. I was invited to the Founder Summit uh, last year, so I got the chance to meet everyone, including the founders of the company that uh, SquarePeg had invested in. Uh, and my general feeling was that SquarePeg was uh, a world-class VC, even if it doesn't have yet the brand name in, the, in Silicon Valley that you might have from, from some other so I thought it was punching significantly above its weight in terms of thinking about expansion, thinking about investment, thinking about helping the founders. Uh, and uh, that's the, the, the reason why I decided to kind of, uh, together with, you know, Freddy uh, and the board, that Square was the right partner to continue building the company. And then obviously there is a personal connections. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm uh, very much driven by people and I think if I spend 12, 14 hours a day working, I'd better do that with people I enjoy working with. And I really enjoyed meeting Tushar and talking to him. I enjoyed meeting the other partners. I enjoyed having a few conversations with uh, Paul. And I thought the conversations were always very consistent. So that over a year and a half, we built a relationship based on consistent view of the world rather than flip-flopping. And that was consistent even through COVID. You know, we, I started raising money eight days after the bottom of the market, so in early April. And uh, the fact that, you know, Squarepack didn't really change their views on what we were doing, uh, I think was right, because I, I was looking for partners who would be with us for the long term, and the long term will include some ups and downs. And in the end, it's just like the beginning. For Michele, it's all about the people. The reality is that Stashway is way, 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 way more than me. And now we have more than 100 people and uh, most of them are exceptional. And uh, obviously, StashWave wouldn't exist if it wasn't for them. And uh, if you ask me what I'm the most proud of, what I would tell you is that the fact they were able to attract and excite and empower an incredible group of young leaders that I think have done a tremendous job in building what today is an awesome company. And I think hopefully, you know, two, three, four, five, ten years down the line, will be an even even larger, better, and uh, more, you know, kind of more successful. That's it for our conversation with Michele from Stashaway. If you want to learn more about the team and their mission, head to stashaway.com and have a poke around. Thanks a million to our brilliant producer, Rami, and to you for listening. We'll see you next week.